Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Keller McFall from Newman University, and I'm host of the show. And today we'll be talking about a new book, one edited by Wolf Gruner and Thomas Pegolo Kaplan, called Resisting Persecution, Jews and Their Petitions During the Holocaust. And the book starts from the simple fact that during the Second World War, individuals and organizations submitted thousands upon thousands of petitions protesting anti-Semitic policies and action. And the book asks why people submitted these petitions, how they chose to craft their appeals, what happened to them, and what we can learn from them. Uh, regular listeners may remember Wolf, who is a professor of history at uh, USC and, and has been a guest on the show a couple times. But Thomas is new to the show. He's the Leon Levine Distinguished Professor of History and Director of the Center for Judaic, Holocaust, and Peace Studies at Appalachian State University. I'm glad to have Wolf back and thrilled to welcome Thomas to the show as well. So with that, Wolf, Thomas, thanks for joining us and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me back. So Wolf's been here before. Uh, Thomas is not. So Thomas, uh, maybe you can take a minute or two or three and just introduce yourself a little bit. what do you want to tell the audience about who you are? Of course. Well, first of all, of course, thank you so very much uh, for having me involved on. It's uh, truly a pleasure, uh, even, of course, is, if the topic is somewhat dark and challenging in many ways as well. But uh, as the listeners and the audience can probably detect uh, from my accent, uh, I am not born in the United States, uh, but also, in fact, uh, from Germany, even from the Western part. Uh, and uh, I've been here for about uh, 25 years. Uh, I became interested in the overall topic of uh, National Socialism uh, and the Shoah uh, when way, way, way back in high school, I started uh, on the occasion of the unusual uh, 50th anniversary of my hometown. So it was founded mm-hmm. during the Nazi period. I was invited to do a piece for a local paper, a student paper. So I did, uh, and I discovered that quite a number uh, of, in fact, Nazi activists uh, were still alive and well, and some even honored and celebrated uh, in that little town. Uh, So I got into it. I wrote quite a bit. I got taken to court over it for all kinds of things and libel and whatsoever. So (laughs) so I really wanted to pursue pursue that further. Uh, and started studying down south in Tübingen uh, with some of the specialists and eventually also in Berlin. But I also was an exchange student uh, way back, uh, well, let's not say when, but quite a while, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and to the United States, to Oregon, in fact. And I really fell in love with the American academic system uh, and uh, with the way of life in general, also on the West Coast, even funny enough, and up on the East Coast. Uh, and, uh, and I really thought this is really the place where I wanted to work, like closely with students mm. uh, on all levels, right, from advanced PhD to undergraduates, given the opportunities uh, to study, not just in the classroom, always me on a one-on-one over coffee, which was almost unheard of at the German schools. I'd studied in uh, Berlin and Tübingen. Uh, and work closely with the students uh, and help them really succeed uh, and pursue, also go with them to archives and groups and individuals and all these kinds of activities, which I've now done. Uh, I came, just maybe a few more words on my areas of interest. Uh, I started out with the work on the language of uh, Nazi genocide, uh, in which I actually touched upon the issue of petitions, to which I then return. Mm-hmm. 
there was more an investigation of the Nazi press and the impact it had in terms of changing the language of what it meant to be German and Jewish uh, and how it was, in fact, then uh, mediated, but then also used uh, by, in fact, mostly Michelin and mixed breeds, so those of a Jewish parent and a quote-unquote uh, you know, parent of German blood, uh, in their exchanges uh, with the Nazi state and their attempt to survive. Uh, some used uh, Mischlinge, some of them actually made their reappearance uh, in uh, the book, uh, now of which uh, hmm. Wolf and I did. Um, and I did a number of other projects, a number of them you know, still uh, in the works, uh, one close to uh, completion on protest movements now post-1945, and their use of uh, genocide uh, language uh, to challenge the memory cultures in their respective country with an emphasis on the United States. Uh, and Germany all the way from the 50s uh, to the 1980s and early 1990s. Um, so that probably gives the uh, listeners um, some sort of an impression of who I am and what work I do. Now, that's a great story. And there, there's clearly a lesson to teachers hidden there, which is you should always be careful about what you assign to students as a project. Um, I gave Wolf a chance to talk about the center he works with last time. Maybe maybe you could say just a, a little bit about uh, the center you direct at Appalachian State. Yeah, the center is uh, about, well, almost 20 years old, so soon we're going to have the anniversary. It uh, was really one of those centers that, unlike Wolf, uh, was in fact driven uh, by uh, people who are coming up here to vacation in the summer to escape huh. the Florida heat. Uh, and there were very, many of them uh, second generation or third generation so survivors or so their parents or grandparents um, survived or, of course, in many cases did not. Uh, and they really uh, heard from a professor at Appalachian State that he would like to have a little more support. So that was 2002 uh, to teach the Holocaust. And they really didn't feel he got too many resources and the like. And they said, so what can we do? Right? And as I say, the rest is history. So it started out with a teacher training institute, uh, not just for university college level, but actually secondary school level, which is now quite successful, has trained more than a thousand people, mm. uh, supported by the claims conference and others. Uh, but uh, I came here in 2015, took over from my predecessor, and I pushed more also the research angle. So we've now been doing some research conferences, uh, mm. fellowships uh, to do also research here. I've been building our minor, doing trips and fellowships to for students to go to Israel or to Poland or to Germany uh, and the like. So it's small, uh, you know, so, but, uh, but we do, it's, our activities are met with growing interest. And the class I'm about to start teaching again as a wait list, as uh, many, of course, of the classes and Holocaust studies that are offered around this country have. Well, it's great to have you on the show, and it's great to have Wolf back. Wolf, I'll turn to you now. Uh, resisting persecution, Jews and their petitions during the Holocaust. How, how did the two of you decide um, to, to collaborate on this book, and, and, and why did you think this book was important? Huh, that's uh, an interesting story, although we don't agree about all the facts here, <laughs> <but> <laughs> because our memory kind of are a little bit different there. But in uh, general, I can say to, uh, to the audience, so... At one point, we uh, uh, we already knew each other. Uh, we had already collaborated, and at uh, uh, one of the uh, or the big uh, important international Holocaust conference, lessons and legacies, mm. we had five minutes um, uh, time. We just stood together, and well, I don't know how we came to the topic of petitions, but we started talking about them. That we encountered them in archives 
uh, en masse and that nobody really takes them seriously. And we uh, quickly discovered that we both kind of were a little bit annoyed about this fact. And uh, we both had seen them, we had worked with them, uh, but also we both had never really kind of consistently and more systematically thought about what they actually mean, uh, what they meant at the time for the individuals who wrote them, who authored them. So we thought this is actually an interesting topic. We should do more about it. And this was practically the start. Um, of this uh, project, uh, we first um, did um, together a small panel at uh, the Association for Jewish um, uh, Scholars, uh, Jewish Studies, uh, where we both presented, invited some uh, um, Tim Cole, who is also in the volume, to present and invited uh, the um, uh, very prominent uh, scholar, Marion Kaplan, who had touched a little bit upon this in her very, um, uh, her books. And so, and we saw that the discussion afterwards was very lively and um, people really appreciated that we tried to kind of do a retake on these petitions and we write this in the book, which were for most scholars, including, I think I have to admit uh, myself, uh, in the beginning thought a little bit as kind of written on paper, but in vain. So, so let's talk about the book. Um, and maybe the place to start, uh, and ask Thomas to start with this. How are you defining petitions? <laughs> it's a good question. Of course, uh, being conceptually minded uh, you know, scholars, uh, we, we deliberately kept it relatively broad. Um, because obviously, you know, there are legal definitions that differ a little bit from uh, country to country. Uh, there are, um, of course, if we keep the broader context in mind, right, the petitions were authored and penned and used. I mean, not just like prior to the shore, right, the actual killing process, you know, starting um, in the confines of homes and offices with Jewish communities still working before being dismantled with the legal system still working to an extent. And obviously the petitions that were filed were there uh, and that were then pre-sketched, if you wish, by various legal degrees, right? The people in the various ministries, be it the Reich Interior Ministry or elsewhere, is kind of issuing. And then petitioners, often with the help of lawyers, often there were also lawyers themselves, were following there, of course, were other settings after the onset of the actual killings. And like, for example, in the various ghettos, like we have a great contribution, you know, in there uh, from a younger scholar, mm -hmm. um, uh, in fact, on petitioning uh, in the Lodge ghetto. Uh, there, of course, petition took a very, very different form. Uh, sometimes even when we found a great image in our research of, uh, of a young kid, maybe like 14, 15 years old, giving little bit bits and pieces of paper uh, to Rumkowski, right, the head of the Judenrat of the Jewish Council there, the eldest not. Uh, and so that also in our reading constitutes a petition. Uh, and so there is, uh, in most cases, clear authorship, number one. Uh, though there are a few protest petitions, we found a whole set, like in France, uh, for example, where there were anonymous, uh, but mostly, of course, there was a name. There was a clear addressee uh, that differed quite a bit, uh, often, of course, a person of real or imagined power or an agency, again, depending. 
in the early stretches, right, when there was still more of a rule of law that people adhered to and followed, especially in Central Europe, they would also like appeal to certain agency, not so much like the parliament, because there was already no longer with any power whatsoever. Um, so that's another component. They evolved around a specific petitum, right? So like a cause, something to request, mm -hmm. right? Something to seek. It was not just simply like a protest. There was only a few exceptions, as I said earlier, uh, or like like a, like a denunciation, for example, that again would be a different a part of it. Um, the, some scholars would make them part of letter writing, though we kind of pretty much agreed that It's, it's too different, though some mm -hmm. really followed like manuals that were printed and written at the beginning of the century uh, mm -hmm. that were also good for those writing letters. Um, there are a number of other distinguishing features for Holocaust-era petitions we found. Uh, one among others is the overall question of urgency. What we see, of course, an onswell of petition uh, once the radicalization of the persecution process is stepped up by the Nazis and their various allies. Right, establishment of a ghetto, right, and we have petitions against like being forcefully relocated there, or or beginning of deportations, people seeking exemptions, or even earlier, of course, in the process, uh, removal from their jobs and seeking a petition to be exempted from this overall process. Um, so, so we deliberately, of course, wanted we wanted a workable um, definition, uh, one that is you know broad enough to accommodate uh, the array of petitions I briefly alluded to. Uh, but also that is still workable because if everything constitutes a petition, what is there to be studied? Right? And maybe I can uh, can add to this. So what we looked at were uh, written um, uh, texts who were addressed to an authority. I think mm -hmm. that that's I, I think in a nutshell what we looked at, and I think that's also why we are so curious about them and why we think they are so important because they usually have demands addressed in them. Some are, as Thomas pointed out, are protesting against the persecution in general, but many of them also challenging like racial um, classification, uh, are trying to uh, challenge uh, anti-Jewish policies. And what is so interesting, it's um, happening all over occupied Europe. So it's not just Nazi Germany proper, but we have these uh, really interesting chapters on Hungary, Romania, mm -hmm. France in the volume. So which makes this really kind of a more universal uh, issue. And uh, what we look at is really how this, uh, uh, since the Jews uh, individually sign with their names, they are exposed. So it's not like uh, that uh, this is something which is kind of without risk for them. I think this we also uh, we have to take into account that Uh, to kind of sign with your own name, put yourself, but also your family at risk. Hmm. Um, I'm going to file away a question for later in the interview about whether we have any sense of verbal petitions, verbal pleas that are not written. So maybe we'll come to that, but back to that. But um, you start, uh, Thomas, with a, a discussion um, about the the historical um, context, the long history of petitions in Jewish and European history. So, so maybe you could say a little bit about how that, that history shaped petition and petitioners in the Holocaust. 
Yes, of course. You know, that's in part, you know, which we identify us or outs us, if you wish, like as historians by training, right? That context <laughs> context is key, right? While, of course, we now singled out specific sets of petitions like that, as Wolf has pointed out, of course, stretched all over Europe and actually beyond uh, the European continent. Um, we, of course, wanted to make sure, and was very obvious and very important for us once we started reading more and more and more and more of them, uh, that there is a longer history uh, they were drawing on, both more immediate, but then also really a much, much longer one that uh, in the earliest uh, instances, uh, you know, stretches back, in fact, to antiquity uh, and to the Roman Empire. Uh, and uh, and some of the petitions also by Jews uh, that were filed there and often even directed uh, to really literally to the emperor, sometimes during the Republic, of course. Uh, to different um, authorities. And these were uh, in many ways quite different, more supplications, uh, more, of course, uh, with uh, an overall uh, language that was very submissive, uh, much more so than the later turn to a more uh, legal phenomenon when mm. by the 19th, late 18th century, they were actually enshrined uh, in constitutions. There was really a constitutional enshrined right like we have today. Uh, to uh, petition a parliament or any, in fact, upper agency uh, that uh, could make the change requested uh, by the citizen uh, here. Uh, but but all of those elements, right, both uh, the supplication to uh, an absolute uh, ruler um, or then the more legal components, right, so addressed uh, to parliament, uh, uh, to a government or whatsoever, uh, all of those components were actually taken up uh, and used uh, by petitioners uh, during uh, the Shoah. And of course, they were adjusted uh, as needed uh, to, in fact, uh, the situation, which then differed, of course, uh, quite wildly. Um, the situation was very different. I already mentioned the, uh, the large ghetto, but other parts, of course, uh, of, um, uh, of German-occupied uh, Eastern Europe, uh, for example, where there was much more arbitrariness and where the SS and others, you know, could like kill uh, without little repercussion consequences or whatsoever, even if they violated whatever law. Uh, that, of course, was different uh, in Vichy France or different, of course, in other parts, even from Romania or Bulgaria. So again, that also depended and the petitioning strategies were adjusted uh, again, according to some of those longer and broader strands. Mm. Uh, that had evolved uh, through history and, in fact, were in many cases also well-documented uh, and also known uh, by uh, and, and documented by various communities or in publications or archives and stuff. And maybe I can add, uh, if, uh, it's in, important, I think, to have in mind that um, petitions work differently in different historical settings. So when they evolved, kind of, uh, first, they were uh, a, a means for a kind of ordinary people to address an authority like a king. Later, uh, they were in, uh, kind of uh, inscribed into kind of political procedures like you could address a parliament. And if you, even if you could not vote, you could write a petition. But for us, uh, more important was actually that in dictatorships, they have a very specific function. Mm. Petitions in dictatorships, as we know from uh, research uh, uh, about, for example, uh, let's say the communist uh, dictatorships. And I noticed from my personal experience as growing, uh, uh, having grown up in East Germany, petitions are the only means what you have when you are excluded from political representation. Because uh, in these kind of centralized authoritarian states, 
you can address the ruler with a petition. So, for example, in East Germany, people knew if you want, for example, a new kind of house or if you want to protest, mm -hmm. you need to write a petition to the East German uh, kind of um, the head of the East German uh, Communist Party. And that's what people did. And often with success if they wanted something. So this was the only way how they could actually voice their opinions, their grievances. It's very similar. We see this also during the Holocaust. Since the Jews were excluded from uh, any political representation, this could uh, practically cross the, um, the authoritarian divide and was uh, a way to express your political opinion. So Wolf, you've got a, a, this wonderfully rich essay in here about Germany and Austria, and, 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 and I'm going to ask you to use it as kind of a lens to, to maybe address some broader questions. So, so, so I'll start with a simple question. Um, who is it that submits these petitions? Yeah, so this is interesting. It is almost, it can be everybody. Uh, so we have petitions uh, of uh, very well-educated uh, doctors, lawyers, but we have also petitions of the owner of a tobacco store. Uh, so we have uh, petitions of men, but also we have uh, petitions of women. We have petitions of young people, by young, uh, authored by young people, but also by old people. So it, it's not really that we can identify their uh, let's say we have more uh, certain strands who are more prone to this because under these cir circumstances of oppression um, and seeing this as one of the few possibilities uh, to address a kind of the oppressive regime, uh, almost everybody could uh, kind of use the, uh, this um, tool. However, there are some tendencies. So if you have people who are more literate, they are more prone to write petitions. But we have uh, examples in the in the volume where, for example, illiterate people would join others writing a petition or authoring a petition, or they would have lawyers or, or community leaders or community staff from Jewish communities to help them write petitions. So, so I guess the, the flip side of the question is, who is it that they submit them to? <laughs> Again, this is a vast kind of uh, universal, uh, uh, universe of uh, people. So everybody in the dictatorship who seems to have some kind of authority, some, <laughs> of, some of them have authority and uh, they are also tied to certain topics. So, for example, if you want to be excluded from a certain local restriction, for example, to visit a library or to, to visit a public park, then you would address um, the petition to the local authority, means the mayor, the head of the local Nazi party. Um, so that's kind of the municipality in general. Um, if it is a law which you are fighting, then you would address the government or Hitler or, uh, let's say, other authoritarian leaders. Um, but we also have petitions who go to private enterprises because, for example, mm -hmm. they were... Um, organizing uh, and uh, uh, benefiting from forced labor. Uh, you have uh, private organizations. So the, there's a vast array of different uh, people who were addressed. And not to, uh, not, a, not a, um, the, the least, uh, the uh, actual perpetrator organizations, like in Germany, the Gestapo, uh, the SS, 
the Nazi Party and the equivalent uh, uh, institutions in other uh, countries like Vichy, France or Romania. And just to add, I mean, the mm -hmm. dynamic also changes over time. So what you see is that while we have a relatively broad array of petitions in Nazi Germany for exemptions or in Vichy France and the like, like in 1940, of course, in Germany much earlier, by 1942, much of that is really suppressed and uh, the German authorities, be it the SD or the Gestapo and the like, no longer want you know Jews to, or allow them, in fact, to petition a broad array of agencies. So there's only one channel left, and mainly, in fact, these are going through those organizations uh, that the Gestapo set up. So Jewish organization, right, by force mm -hmm. established uh, by, in fact, uh, uh, Nazi authorities, right, be the UGF in France or the forced organization for all Jews, foreign uh, and domestic uh, in France, or be it the um, Reichsvereinigung, uh, in fact, or forced organization for Jews in Germany, those defined as Jewish by the Nazi state. And so all the petitions have to be directed to them. Then they have to read out which is legitimate or not. And then, in fact, they send them onwards uh, to the Gestapo and SD and uh, authorities likewise. That situation like more like in 42. So what we see, it's much more limited. There's still, of course, other petitions that come through, like to individuals, as Wolf just mentioned, people in industry or whatsoever, or even from the German military government, like in Paris, uh, a little bit, but uh, that's the broader tendency. So the masses of, you know, petition, petitioning earlier on, uh, and then towards the final stages, uh, the authorities try to reduce them, but it continues. And also, uh, it is uh, even at the very end when this is more confined, it depends also where this happens. So there are mm -hmm. uh, big distinctions, for example, between occupied Poland, uh, France, uh, and also uh, Germany proper. So, I mean, there are still petitions in 1941 or 1942 who are directed directly to a Nazi authority. Uh, but it's different in other uh, countries. And so that's uh, kind of, there are differences Uh, local and regional, and then also national. Right. And the perception also changes, which is the fascinating thing that we found. Right, So while a petition that might have been successful, like in 1937 or 1938, and that, you know, or whatsoever, with similar strategies, right, then a petition that was then filed by 42 or 1943, you know, at that time, you see the very act of petitioning, you found this in various sources uh, that were um, still available from the Gestapo or, you know, even some of the ministries in which uh, Nazi authorities then uh, marked the very act of petitioning, right, that Jews would go for a certain, like, mm. reason, you know, as a distinguishing feature of Jewishness as something that had to be, in fact, turned down, as something that, in fact, uh, had to be somehow have negative consequences even for the petitioner. Um, so that also two changes. Again, with differences, as Wolf pointed out correctly, you know, across the continent. So, so there's actually two of my next questions are embedded in, 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 in those responses. And so let me start. Um, I think one of the things that will surprise readers of this volume, maybe not professional readers, but, but non-academics, one reasonable response I can imagine as they're reading is, well, why would the government ever agree to any of these requests? So, so, so 
why is how is it that there was a hope that these requests would be granted? Whom are you asking? Oh, we'll start with you, Wolf. <laughs> okay, I take it. Um, yeah, so first of all, um, uh, this is also uh, developing uh, uh, over time. So in the mm -hmm. beginning, um, I mean, as um, Thomas pointed out, there's a history of petition. So, for mm -hmm. example, in Germany, it was your right to petition the government, which was also true for other countries. So people could petition. Later on, uh, the more this dictatorships were uh, established, the more radical these, these regimes uh, um, kind of uh, uh, evolved, the, the more difficult it was. But uh, there was also this point that um, normal democratic procedures are not working anymore. They are kind of uh, shut down. That means you can't address like, uh, a, uh, like a city parliament with hmm. some requests. There is only the mayor whom you can address because he is the decider. He is the one who rules the city and who has all the authority. And the same is true for all other levels of administration. So uh, this is one point. The second is that um, we saw that uh, these authoritarian leaders also felt some power by receiving these uh, uh, petitions because this actually showed exactly the establishment of the dictatorship because they were not addressing the parliament, but the person uh, who rules the country or the, uh, and so, or the region. And so it gave them power. Uh, this was uh, important. And then, uh, in a way, it is about decision-making, uh, that uh, they wanted to take all these decisions, and even in these uh, small uh, cases of individual requests. So I think uh, these are important um, mm. things to consider, why they would take it. Because it sounds sometimes weird when we think, sometimes also in a very simplistic way about uh, the Holocaust and uh, these, these kind of dictatorships. They were much more complex. And it was not like of, uh, sometimes the public also thinks in hindsight, uh, everybody was in a concentration camp and uh, this was uh, kind of totally horrible from the beginning. There was a process, and this developed over time how people acted with uh, and interacted with each other. And again, really, the context is critical, right? So while we're mostly not exclusive, we are mostly singling out uh, petitions by Jews during the Shoah, uh, and there were quite sizable in numbers. The, the precise numbers are impossible to establish. We're talking in the tens of thousands, uh, right? So there only were a minuscule part of all the petitions that were written and submitted mm. by two authorities. So, for example, one of the Nazi agencies created the Kanzlei of the Führer, the Chancellery of the Führer, like an informal agency, not part of the formal government structure. We receive, we have like uh, some documents there, like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of petitions, mostly from Gentiles, right? Which also included like a poem for Hitler on his 50th birthday or whatever, mm. all kinds of things. Uh, right. And then, of course, a little request, please do this and that for me. Uh, right. So, but again, as, as Rolf pointed out, this is very important for the legitimacy right, of a dictatorial regime, uh, especially, of course, you know, with others like the official voter acclamations, like becoming weaker and weaker. So that's an important component of it. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting window into the degree way in which these societies are kind of complex and always moving or always shifting 
balances between bureaucratic structures and personal um, desires or responses. Um, as I was reading this book, I I was reminded, I for, for those listeners who don't know, I teach history uh, at, at a small college, and one of the joys of the academic life is committee work. Uh, and one of the many committees I was on was the exceptions committee. Um, and there seemed to be a never-ending stream of exceptions coming to the committee. Now, whether there are technically petitions or not, I'll let the two of you decide. But, but I have worked with countless numbers of students to help them understand how to write a successful exceptions request. So I'm wondering what, what strategies do the writers of these petitions, whether individually or corporately, how do they try and frame their request? What kind of language did they choose to use? What kind of um, um, markers in their life biography do they cite? How do they try and frame a request um, so that it might be read and granted? And, and Thomas, I'll start with you. That's, of course, the fascinating part and also adds to the complexity. Right, because like almost by definition, uh, to write a petition uh, that would come close or close enough uh, to being granted uh, in the end, um, the authors, in fact, you know, had to adopt a language, had to adopt a way of authoring it that would appeal right to the petition agency or individual. So, so in many cases, as I also have argued elsewhere they were forced to speak Nazi in mm-hmm. some cases, right? Use Nazi terminology and the like. Uh, and in some cases that even didn't go away for the survivors after the war when they laid claim to reparation or whatsoever, they again had to identify themselves in certain ways and things like that. Um, so, but, but for us, the important point to make, and, you know, and, and Wolf takes it even a little further, which is great, is that at the very same time, these, of course, were also acts of resisting. In many cases, mm. but all but in many cases. So, so there is this tension there. But, but we also, of course, traced cases uh, in which petitioner would adopt a radically different language and would like challenge up right from the front uh, why this Nazi ideology is like humbug and like doesn't make any sense. And there's no, I mean, literally, you found some of those. Huh. But, but you can imagine what happened to the authors, right? I mean, that it, it didn't go anywhere, right? So, uh, those petitions. So, so in many ways, right, uh, people had to adopt a certain language. That was, of course, done to different degrees, right? We have some more enthusiasm, some then ended up with like high Hitler, like uh, underneath, but rarely uh, in other cases. So that's kind of part, part of the broader attention. But in terms of specific arguments that were adopted, and, you know, of course, Wolf has a lot to say about this as well. Um, it was also highly gendered. That's an mm. important component. So we have in many cases men who did military service and there was no shortage. Uh, you know, of course, of, of men uh, across Europe, Jewish men who served whatever army it was on whatever side, uh, they would uh, quote that. And that was also in part done and done so often because many of the especially early exemption laws, uh, be it like an exemption from uh, some provision of the Nuremberg laws or even earlier uh, for civil servants to be allowed to keep their position like a little longer and stuff like that, directly listed right uh, accomplishments, military service and the like for the fatherland. And so, so they were already pushed into using that type of language. Uh, and, uh, and yes, they did. 
And there is this kind of ambivalence uh, in a way or ambiguity in these sources. So on the one hand, um, this, there is a tradition. If you write a petition, you always kind of try to emphasize how much you did for the country. This mm. was also uh, kind of common before you, before a dictatorship. However, in this case, when in a dictatorship, under these oppressive circumstances, if you claim that you did something for the fatherland, this in itself is an act of resistance. Because, as you know, the Nazis wanted to exclude the Jews from any kind of uh, German history. So to claim that they fought for uh, their, their homeland, um, that this is uh, already kind of challenging the ruler. And they did even more often they claim to, uh, they kind of emphasize uh, how much they uh, contributed as taxpayers, how much they uh, contributed for cultural development, scientific uh, uh, developments, to make a, a case that they were valuable elements of the society. Because all the time since the Nazis started, they were kind of barraged by uh, um, claims that they were not worthy, that they are not part of this uh, of this Germany, or in other cases like France or, or Hungary or Romania. So to write how much they did and um, how much they accomplished and how, what they sacrificed was in itself a challenge to the uh, to the regime. I was interested, Thomas. Um, your essay illustrates cases where. Um, some people used strategies like invoking the military service that they assumed would be successful um, because either they they either it's assumption based on their experience in, in, in Germany or other places or or that they'd seen it work on the continent that turned out not to be effective when directed um, at at uh, other countries in the Philippines, for instance. So so I wonder if you could talk about that and maybe as an entry point to your essay. Actually, maybe let's do this. Why don't you talk a little bit about um, what your essay is about and the arguments you're making, and, and then maybe use that as a jumping off point to say how that is um, the need to speak to a different audience is a challenge to those people who are writing petitions. Yeah, no, it's an excellent point. No, I mean, the, the importance for the book is that we didn't simply want to confine it uh, to uh, Europe. Um, in regard to you know to whom those petitions were directed to, uh, because in the context of trying to escape the continent, uh, which I mean there were still massive and partially successful attempts all the way up to the fall of forty one, then then it was prohibited by Nazi authorities, but also of course then even later. So what I'm working, what what my uh, contribution in the volume, the chapter uh, is about, is in fact the attempt uh, by mostly German and Austrian Jews uh, to escape uh, to the Philippines, uh, mostly between 1938 uh, and uh, 1941. Uh, and uh, in fact, the broader transnational networks and transfers uh, that had to happen and take place uh, in order to enable people to do that. And it was not just the question of information sharing, uh, which also consists of quite complex you know, channels via the Hilfswines or the main aid organizations of uh, Jews in Germany uh, to any location but Palestine uh, was a different office set up for that purpose, uh, or even private networks and families like sharing and others. 
or even you know government officials or like American authorities like passing on information into American aid organization and then they would in turn make their way their way over uh, to Berlin or Vienna and other agencies and like this as well. But it was also of course an issue once you have once you had heard it and were desperate of course to flee and that of course was the situation especially after the programs of 1938. Uh, you know, it was still an issue of like how to make this happen. Uh, it's a broader issue of why didn't more Jews leave in the first place. Uh, and here the argument uh, goes that, in fact, uh, in the case of the Philippines, what was really was important to strike the right language, what adopt is a language of labor and immigration. Uh, so mm-hmm. authorities in the Philippines uh, partially mixed in with American immigration law. America, of course, was a sovereign power until independence after the war. Uh, in fact, uh, really uh, wanted to avoid having those refugees come and then become public charges. Uh, so profession, so having a profession that would be desirable and needed in the Philippines, so uh, not farming, because that's obviously frequently done, or tailoring of whatsoever, but highly specialized uh, professions, uh, be it uh, you know physicians, for example, or also in reference to some of the corporations uh, mostly American that were active in the Philippines, like tobacco specialists, right? Or some tobacco mm. companies, kind of run by American Jews, in fact, out of Ohio. Uh, you know, or uh, or in fact, uh, even even a rabbi. You know, these were the criteria, mm. right? That that were needed. But of course, people needed to learn and find out uh, first, right? That that this is what was needed, and then of course they had to couch it in the right language. Then petition approached the right authorities. Uh, some tried to circumvent it and directly petition Quezon, right, the first president of the Commonwealth. Uh, that was mostly unsuccessful, though he had a role in it, but it was more a specific Jewish committee with the support of the U.S. High Commissioner who were doing it. And then also the Hilfsverein uh, in, in Berlin. So again, the main uh, German-Jewish aid organizations for destinations other than Palestine uh, were directly involved here as well. And then it was really an issue of like how successful was that uh, carried across. It was not just, in fact, the profession. It was also age. Uh, as you can imagine, if you're too old, right, you would not be successful. Well, there's a question of language ability quite plainly. I mean, nobody expected to speak Tagalog, but but certainly uh, Spanish and English. Uh, so that was another one. Uh, but even that, and showing the importance of petitioning and language, there were a number of cases, right, in which people still succeeded uh, to be admitted, even if they didn't meet those desired professions and some mm-hmm. of the other criteria. And this, again, uh, speaks to the, impo- the importance. Uh, of uh, petitions in the first place. But here really for that chapter, what we had in mind was to widen the scope. Uh, also a little bit, a little bit, question a little bit like the Eurocentric nature of the Holocaust, which on first thought, of course, is like, of course, well, that's where all the killings or most of them were carried out. Uh, but it's really a global history. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the Shoah in many ways. And and here, in fact, is another one, and I won't start talking, but we can later on if you have time, uh, you know, about the Japanese component, because especially mm-hmm. in the Philippines, as of, you know, 41, 42, the Japanese literally occupied the entire island. And then the petitioning continued to Japanese authority. Uh, so again, also had a different uh, component uh, to it. Hmm. Um, you all mentioned gender, uh, and I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, and, and so and I guess I'll ask Wolf to start um, what else can we say about gender and, and petitions? How often did, did women write petitions and did they write them in different ways and were they received in different ways? What do we know about this? So um, when we look at the volume, um, there are several uh, times uh, 
and places where women would more likely to write petitions. So, for example, when we think about uh, the uh, program in November 1938, uh, the uh, euphemistically called Kristallnacht, um, the, uh, there were uh, 30,000 uh, Jewish males um, took into, uh, taken into custody and then uh, brought to concentration camps. This was the moment in time where many of uh, many women in Germany, Jewish women, would write petitions to release their husbands. Mm -hmm. So there's a clear kind of point in time where overwhelmingly women were writing these petitions. Interestingly, in some ways, we also found that um, when women were writing petitions on behalf of their men, they sometimes used uh, kind of uh, patriarchal stereotypes like mm -hmm. pointing to the military service of their husbands or their bro uh, brothers uh, or family members whom they wanted to uh, uh, kind of get released. So that's interesting that uh, they use sometimes the same uh, language there. But I, mm -hmm. Thomas, if you want to uh, add to this. Yeah, and gender, of course, is not just a question of constructions of femininity, mm -hmm. but of course also of masculinity. And we found mm -hmm. quite a bit right, that also you know, male petitioners uh, were kind of situating their petitions in the broader you know, gender hierarchies and stereotypes of the day. Right. So, for example, in cases where you had like a Gentile spouse trying to make a case for uh, like a, like a like a wife concept categorized as Jewish, right? They would adopt a certain language of the breadwinner and the all uh, Aryan children that would suffer, you know, if there wouldn't be an exception for that uh, for that uh, wife and things like that as well. So we have those components uh, going into the mix as well. So we don't have time to talk a lot about a lot of the essays individually, but I would like to ask um, about one or two of them. Uh, and one of them, um, Wolf already mentioned, Tim Cole, uh, essay on Budapest and, and ghettoization in, there and in Hungary, which I thought was fascinating um, and was an illustration of how looking at petitions can say something important about uh, uh, the broader nature of the Holocaust that you might not recognize without looking at these petitions. So. Um, either one of you, and I don't really care who, um, can you talk a little bit about this essay and, and, and what, what he found out about ghettoization in Budapest from these petitions? Yeah, I can do this. Uh, so Tim Cole um, uh, found uh, several hundred petitions uh, written in uh, 1944 in June uh, in uh, Budapest. And um, these petitions were uh, asking for either um, stop relocations where because the aim was to create a kind of a Jewish ghetto in Budapest. So Jewish petitioners would try to prevent from being relocated. But interestingly, at the same time, non-Jewish uh, um, uh, inhabitants of these uh, apartment houses would also write because they also didn't want to be relocated. So there is a, a, a big kind of struggle going on who um, has to leave the home and is relocated to a Jewish house, and who can stay? Because it meant for uh, the, the ones who be relocated to lose all their social networks, uh, resources, neighbors, friends. So um, people try to stop these uh, the, the ghettoization. And um, interestingly, and this speaks to the larger question of success, because often one of the big uh, prejudice uh, regarding petitions is, especially during the Holocaust, is they were all written in vain. They had no no success. 
from my standpoint, when I look at resistance, success doesn't matter. It is the act of resistance matters. And the same is true for petitions. The act of petitioning matters. And here uh, it actually goes beyond that because in Budapest, we can say they also succeeded in many ways and even reshaped persecution. And what Tim Cole found out was that not only could some of the parties stop the relocation, but in other cases, they actually created something which the the, um, uh, authorities didn't have in mind. They had in mind to separate Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. But what they created after getting this wave of petitions, they created so-called mixed houses, which kind of was in a way counterproductive to the, uh, uh, to this whole process of ghettoization mm-hmm. because it actually kept Jews and non-Jews together. So here we see clearly how uh, the act of petitioning on a larger scale can reshape uh, the uh, radical persecution process. And on a smaller scale, we see this also that the petitions in other cases had a success. And we actually say not only uh, it doesn't really matter if they had success, because often it also uh, kind of um, used up resources of the perpetrator. It bought time for the persecuted so that they had better chances to survive. So what we define as success is also kind of a wide range. That's really a critical point, right? That with petitioning and conceptualizing it, we also reconceptualize the very notion of success. Mm. Right? Where previously scholars like Hilberg and others always point out, well, show me the success, right? Even they would argue in cases where they were given an exemption, like in 41, then in 43, when the Gestapo took over, like from the interior ministry in Germany or elsewhere and stuff like that, they would just go after the same person and get them anyhow. And in a number of cases, that's undoubtedly the case, but also in many more, it is not. Uh, and it's the issue of really buying time, as Wolf had pointed out, right? It's important to, to be aware that even in order to go underground, successfully go into hiding, as many people did, like thousands in Berlin alone, uh, or Vienna, for example, right? So it needed quite some preparation, right? To, to escape, like to Lisbon, like, or other places or whatsoever, um, you know, so it was still feasible, also required like resources, preparations and whatsoever. So by petitioning, it's not to say that in all cases, a petitioning process that was still ongoing wasn't disturbed by, by the security police or whatsoever. In some cases it was, uh, but in many cases it wasn't. It really bought them invaluable time to succeed in this way. Not always did they, you know, of course, then survive in the end, but in many cases they did, or, or some of the relatives and the like. And that's really important. Uh, as is the other point, it's important to, to stress this again, right? That despite the power differential, we are not naive. Of course, right? There was not equal power influence by Jewish organizations or individuals vis-a-vis fascist authorities. Of course, that was not the case. But nonetheless, right? Even within this unfavorable power differential, um, Jewish petitioners succeeded time and again, as Tim Kohl has shown with the redefinition of like mixed houses. Or in other cases where petitioners introduced like some imaginary categories like three-quarter Aryan or Aryan religious Jew or whatever, all kinds of things, uh, that really gave them this much-needed reprieve and their families too. And, and also we see actually how complex these negotiations were because often it is, although they are addressed to one authority, 
it also could be the case that they use the authorities to actually go against another authority. So, for example, in the Protectorate Bohemia Moravia, the Jewish community of Prague intervened uh, and wrote petitions to Eichmann to stop ghettoization in rural areas in Bohemia. And in some cases, they succeeded. So here you have kind of also the involvement of a variety of institutions which are not immediately addressed, but actually are the addressee of the petition. Yeah, that complexity, of that, that brings me to the other essay I wanted to ask you to address, and, uh, and I'll invite Thomas to do that if you feel comfortable with, and that's, and I'm sorry, I don't know how, exactly how to pronounce her name. Would you guess it's Senya Betka, is that yeah, right? Senya Betka. Um, uh, she talks about petitions to Jewish councils, to, to a specific Jewish council. So, so can you talk about what she concluded and what she found? Yeah, I briefly mentioned that early on to give yeah. give, give an uh, impression of the breadth, you know, uh, scope, you know, of petitioning, uh, and and in many ways in which the destruction process, uh, you know, functioned, of course, was to uh, involve. Uh, Jewish victims uh, in the administrative process, uh, for example, administering the ghetto, was obviously all supervised with German authorities on the ground or whatsoever. Uh, but but Rumkowski, of course, pursued his own agenda and plan as far as the large ghetto was concerned. The main area there was, of course, again, labor, but labor for the Germans in order to keep as many Jewish inmates, uh, you know, prisoners of the ghetto alive to the end as possible. And then he almost succeeded if the Red Army hadn't stopped uh, their advance in 1944. Uh, and, and here the issue was that Romkowski deemed petitioning so important, right, again, as a voice, you know, of for the thousands and thousands, you know, of Jews imprisoned uh, in the in the Lodge, that he actually established, as Svenja showed, uh, an own agency uh, to process them. And, and in fact, uh, many survived. I mean, read, read the thousands of documents. Of course, the authors did not in most, almost all cases, um, you know, but, but the petitions. And here it turned out to be an instrument, of course, in part, you know, as the volume as a whole argues for, you know, agency and influence, you know, and the like, uh, trying to get an exemptions for, you know, a child uh, or um, rather, well, child is difficult because there were age limit, but like those like like teenagers, like 14, 15, 16 years old or cutoff dates once the deportation started to the uh, death camps, you know, uh, and the like. Um, but also, in fact, it was an instrument for Romkowski too, uh, to establish and secure uh, his rule in, in the ghetto as well. And that's, of course, the broader argument. Um, that uh, we partially addressed earlier on why would the Nazis or the fascist authorities allow petitioning in the first place. So it's a broader uh, complexity, uh, and, uh, and, and Svenja is, of course, partially uh, quite, quite critical of the way it was done uh, and used, um, and also does some of the corruption, some of the broader complexity, which, and of course, uh, we also want to face and wherever appropriate, like did in the volume as well. So, so I guess I'd turn then in the little time we have left um, to the future. So, and, and Wolf, you can start with this. This, this is a wonderful volume, but it's slim. It's 220 or 30 pages. Uh, there's no way it can cover um, the, the breadth and uh, depth of the subject. So, so what do people need to, to research next? Where's the next steps for looking at petitions? So for us, it was important to just kind of, uh, in a way, um, open up a field of research. Mm -hmm. It was not to uh, deliver a conclusive or concluding volume. This is the start, I think, of a large endeavor of in-depth studies. Um, first of all, 
There is no study, for example, on petitions uh, in Hungary yet. There's mm-hmm. only this one art, tiny article about petitions and digitization in Budapest. So we want uh, to kind of um, instigate uh, countrywide uh, studies, maybe also in-depth micro-historical local studies. But in the beginning of the volume, we actually even had a larger reach of uh, because we actually thought about that petitions matter not only during the Holocaust for the oppressed Jews, but they matter also in other authoritarian regimes with mm. other minorities and in cases of other genocides. So we thought that uh, actually this also opens up um, the possibility to revisit beyond the resistance of these individual Jews during the Holocaust, um, also to look at, for example, I uh, did some research on indigenous people in Bolivia. They also use petitions to kind mm. of um, address the authorities, which in this case was a post-colonial republic, but it was in a way a heavy uh, discriminating regime against indigenous people. So I think it opens up many avenues for new research and really to revisit what these petitions in these oppressive circumstances are, um, that they are in many cases um, um, uh, documents or evidence of contestation, challenges and uh, resistance. And so it was never really our intention, of course, to mm-hmm. close uh, the overall topic with that volume. It was really, as Wolf correctly pointed out, of course, our contribution uh, to uh, have scholars revisit uh, these really fascinating and important uh, you know, sources uh, from all points of the spectrum to grasp uh, other aspects of the Shoah even further. And the important component all along is, of course, it is really like a hybrid source, right? That 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 encompasses, in fact, the voices of the victims, but also by necessity that of the perpetrators as well. Uh, and numerous bystanders. We want to make up the trias again. Uh, and so, so very unlike almost all other sources that we have from the shore, which often, of course, are perpetrator sources. We should look at Hilberg's work, and of course, very important early on in the process, uh, as well as then more like ego documents by victims only, like diaries and the like. Of course, we have many of those, but here's really very different source that gives us many more insights. And and we already had, in fact, some early responses um, of also younger colleagues who do work on petitioning in Slovakia, for example, mm-hmm. works coming out soon. Uh, so there's really more in the works. There's not much about Italy. I had some conversations there with the colleague Yad Vashem, uh, for example, as well. So that's really the idea to, to have much more. Uh, kind of research uh, being done and come together in a number of venues. Mm-hmm. And as Wolf has pointed out, it is not, of course, just the Holocaust. And, and many years ago, they didn't pursue it further. Uh, but of course, now they're going to do that at some point. I organized a panel at the American Historical Association uh, on petitioning, in which we had mm-hmm. like slave petitions. I talked about petitions to uh, the Fuhrer, another colleague about resistance in Cuba in the 19th century, kind of and the like. There's really a lot there. And of course, Wolf worked a lot about some other aspects of this as well in different projects. Well, if there are any graduate students who are listening, and I suspect there are, that's at least a dozen dissertation topics I heard come up. So um, you're welcome. Um, but thank you so much for uh, your time. This has been a wonderful discussion. It's a great book. I will be teaching um, a class called The Holocaust and Its Legacies here in a couple of weeks, and uh, the essays have made it into at least three or four different class periods. 
uh, of the class I'll teach. I always end these interviews by asking you all to um, to uh, to say something about a book or to nominate a book or a movie or something that, that you think the audience would find meaningful. And so, um, Thomas, I'll start with you and then Wolf can go next. What What should I read this weekend? Oh, I should think, you know, when we were working on the book, what came to mind uh, time and again uh, was, in fact, not a work of nonfiction, but, in fact, of fiction. I was hmm. really thinking time and again of Franz Kafka. Uh, the process, or rather the trial, right? The uh -huh. work that was published in 25, but actually written earlier during the war. Uh, and here we really see like the protagonist, like Joseph K., right, being imaginally arrested, like struggling, trying to figure out what it was all about, uh, trying to pursue all kinds of administrative units in some bizarre places and whatsoever, and, uh, and be being at a loss in a way. And so, and so that's, that's in part also what not all, but, but some of the petitioners also experience, like trying to work the system in certain ways. Now, of course, the ending for those who have read it, well, probably I shouldn't give it away. Uh, it really, doesn't really quite fit our argument, but, but, but nonetheless, I think that's an important work. And it's also not too long. And Wolf? Yeah, so I thought actually about uh, why not read a petition? And uh, I'm referring to one which is uh, probably easy accessible on the internet. It's the um, letter Armin T. Wegener, the uh, German writer, wrote uh, to Hitler uh, on April 11, uh, 1933. And uh, I'm pointing to this not because it's another petition against, uh, or very early one, against the persecution of the Jews, but uh, because he is... Uh, for the Armenian community, uh, one of the heroes, because during the First World War, he was stationed in Turkey and took pictures and was very critical of the um, persecution of the Armenians by the Ottoman Empire and the uh, kind of evolving um, uh, and against the uh, uh, evolving Armenian genocide. So he, in his uh, in his person, we have the bridge between two genocides and uh, an individual who is kind of. Uh, resisting against both. And uh, I think this is uh, a, an interesting four-page read, uh, what he thought about the persecution of the Jews so early on with his experience from the Ottoman Empire. That's both both wonderful suggestions. Um, I will say I wish I had more time to read this weekend, but syllabi are approaching. Um, but we have been listening to an interview with uh, Thomas um, Thomas Pegelow Kaplan and Wolf Gruner about their book, Resisting Persecution, Jews and Their Petitions During the Holocaust. Next up on the podcast is an interview with Frank Jacob uh, speaking about his book, Japanese War Crimes During World War II. Uh, and that'll be in your feed in a couple weeks. Uh, but Tom, Thomas and Wolf, thank you so very much for your time. Uh, I hope you're both willing to come back. Uh, I know you're both busy on new projects. I hope you'll be willing to come back on the podcast and talk about them then. But until then, thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Gladly. Thanks for thank having you. Us. Stay safe.